It's Friday, February 5th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. When it comes to women in the workforce during the pandemic, the numbers don't tell the full story. Since the pandemic began, women have lost 5.4 million jobs and nearly 2.1 million women have left the workforce entirely. There are many reasons why women have been squeezed out, but one thing is sure, the effects will be long-lasting. Angela Garbez, contributor to The Cut and author of Like a Mother, joins us for more. Next, this is what I wanted to hear. A 24-year-old graduate student from MIT got on the GameStop train and turned $500 into over $200,000. He did it like many others, getting advice on the Wall Street Bets subreddit and felt like he was part of something bigger. In the end, family and friends convinced him to sell before the stock dropped. Gregory Zuckerman, special writer at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for one person's wild GameStop ride. Finally, how has President Biden been adjusting to life at the White House? Joe Biden is an extrovert who likes walking about the building and checking in with staffers. Biden also has a much more structured day than his predecessor when it comes to phone calls and briefings. Anita Kumar, White House correspondent and associate editor at Politico, joins us for Biden's more traditional style. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. You know, experts call it a constrained choice, but in many ways, it's not a choice at all. When you have to choose between caring for your children and ensuring the survival of them or making money, you know, like this is a problem that we've set up. Joining us now is Angela Garbez, contributor to The Cut and author of Like a Mother. Thanks for joining us, Angela. Thanks for having me, Oscar. We've seen how the pandemic has been affecting our everyday lives. Uh, Obviously, when it comes to the virus itself, we've seen it disproportionately affect communities of color. And on the economic front also, we've also seen it really impact women when it comes to the workforce. You know, we've long seen throughout this whole process how mothers have had to cut back on hours or just quit their jobs entirely because they had to stay home with their kids when they're doing remote learning. We've seen other studies too kind of reflect some of how important that could be because if women jump out of the workforce, sometimes it's harder for them to get back in. Angela, you wrote a story for The Cut just talking about how tough this is. There's some statistics in there and then some of your own personal story as well. So uh, help us walk through some of that. I mean, I really think the pandemic is exposing, it's worsening things that we already had, you know, structural failings. You know, women are already making, you know, like 70 cents to a dollar, right? And we've never valued domestic work, which is disproportionately falls on women's shoulders and we don't pay people for that, even though that care work is the essential work that makes every other kind of work possible. So in the pandemic, what we're seeing, though, is that, you know, it's not much of a choice. If your child care center is closed, you know, whether you work in an ICU or you work in a grocery store, you can't leave your child alone. That's an impossible thing. And, and the thing about it is, but you also can't afford to not work. So these are really impossible choices that people are forced to make. I really take issue with the way that sometimes things are framed where women are stepping back from the workforce, you know, or leaving the workforce. What's really happening is that women and mothers are being forced out. You could say it's like being thrown off of a building, right? We're being squeezed out of the workforce. You know, experts call it a constrained choice, but in many ways, it's not a choice at all. When you have to choose between caring for your children and ensuring the survival of them or making money, you know, like this is a problem that we've set up. Like to me, it's not a sign of a healthy society when people are forced to make those choices. What have we seen through this pandemic? The millions of jobs lost 
since this all started. I think uh, according to the National Women's Law Center, 5.4 million jobs have been lost by women since the pandemic began, and nearly 2.1 million women have left the labor force entirely. So at that point, they're not really counted in unemployment statistics. And, uh, you know, right. this could have other effects to just kind of uh, the I, I, you yeah. know, women being in the workforce and, and those numbers that we yeah. get. So women and women of color, I should say specifically, are overrepresented in service and hospitality. So those sectors have been decimated by the pandemic. And let's also talk about how many of those jobs are not going to come back. We're talking right. about businesses and small businesses closing. You know, and 2.1 million women leaving the workforce, they are no longer actively looking for work. They are not counted in unemployment statistics. Like, this is an immediate problem, but this is also a long-term problem. These jobs, like I said, are not going to come back. And even before the pandemic, women overwhelmingly leave the workforce to do caretaking. And that's both for children, also for aging parents, for relatives, right? Studies have shown consistently they have a harder time getting back in the workforce, and then they come back to lower wages. So that's going to happen here again, too. So the damage is really long term. It's going to be we're back at employment levels for women right now. The last time the employment levels for women were this low was 1986. And so I think, you know, we're going to be seeing this is going to affect, you know, this is like a once in a lifetime devastation. And I think that we don't talk about that enough. And, you know, numbers are one thing, you know, like when you are talking about numbers like 5.4, 2.1, there's almost the scale of that is like kind of incomprehensible. And I think we sort of become numb to it in a way, in the same way that we become numb to 400,000 people have died of COVID, right? Or like 3,000 people die every day. I think what gets lost when we talk about statistics is like, when we're talking about 2.1 million people leaving, that's like millions of individual people choosing between paying their rent, right? Or caring for their kids or paying between rent and groceries, right? People like there's just this tremendous amount of grief lost sense of identity and self-esteem when you can't work, right? Or just feeling like you're failing as a parent because you don't have the patience and you're so stressed, right? right? And so one of the things that I wanted to do when you talked about, like in the article that I wrote, I brought in some of my own experience because we need to hold space for those stories. It's easy to report statistics. It's easier to lose sight of, you know, this is devastating people, personally, individually, emotionally, psychologically. And we just, you know, I don't feel like we're talking about that enough. Like, this is really hard. Yeah. <laughs> and, and devastating and, our economy and it's devastating people's lives. You're right. And for a lot of people, like a lot of things that have been going on with the pandemic, a lot of people have gotten sick. We know that. But a lot of people have not gotten sick and it doesn't sink in for them. You know, if you don't know somebody yeah. personally that might have gotten sick. And, and this is kind of the same thing. You know, it doesn't sink in for you if your family hasn't been affected this way, if your mom had to stop working to take care of the kids or your wife had to stop working to take care of the kids, things like that. And it's not just, you know, that sense of it. You know, there's all sorts of other things for reasons why women, as you mentioned, got maybe got forced out of the workforce. Final question, how, how are you doing in your endeavor? I know you were trying to release a book, things like that, things that you had to put on hold because of the pandemic. It's been really hard. I was supposed to turn in a book manuscript this summer. Um, I pushed it back a full year. I'll put a number on it because I don't think we do that enough, you know, I've lost probably $40,000 in income this year. I'm fortunate because we have my husband's income that we can live off of, which is money is tight, but I mean, I'm doing okay. And I think this is another thing that's really hard is that this is hard on everyone, right? And I think sometimes because like I have a certain amount of privilege and comfort, you kind of are self-conscious because you know there is somebody out there who has it worse. 
But yeah, I think we need to acknowledge, like, there, yes, there are people, this is like leaving them destitute, people, you know, homeless, ill, dead, like, that is real. And like, let us never deny that level. But it is so hard on everybody. And like, we have a right to that grief. And we have a right to talk about how hard it is. Yeah. Thank you for asking how I am. No, of um, course. I'm like, I'm getting by, you know, like everyone. <laughs> right. And and I'm just hoping, you know, that these conversations and bringing up these issues, you know, we can address some of those problems a little bit more. Angela Garvez, yeah. contributor to The Cut and author of Like a Mother. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. He bought $500. He only put $500 into these options. But before he knew it, he was caught up. He couldn't do anything else. Couldn't think about anything else. He was playing tennis with his friends. And literally, after every point in the match, he was whipping out his phone and checking the current price, how much he was making, how much he was losing. Joining us now is Gregory Zuckerman, special writer at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Gregory. Oh, great to be here. This is the story I was waiting for in all of the GameStop Wall Street craziness. I wanted to hear a story of somebody who got in, made some money, some good money too, and got out. Didn't want to keep kind of pushing his luck, let's say. So we have a story of a 24-year-old graduate student from MIT. He's in mechanical engineering. Uh, his name is Anubav Gua, and he turned $500 into a little over $200,000 in about three weeks, less than three weeks, in all this GameStop craziness. So Gregory, tell us a little bit more about his story. He's an easy guy to root for. He's a grad student, 24 years old, MIT. He's got a stipend of about $36,000 a year. So he's not like he's rolling in money. And basically he had a little bit of cash, about $4,000 or so, that he decided to play with. And he did that starting about a year ago, uh, back in March, when the pandemic really began. And he lost a good chunk of it trading the market. So he was down to about $2,000, and then he stumbled upon Wall Street Bets, this uh, suddenly popular subreddit uh, on the Reddit site. And they were talking about GameStop, so he got excited, and he bought these options, which basically are bullish trades bet on GameStop. And, yeah, he did really well. Tell us a little bit about that sense of being part of something bigger, because a lot of people were feeling that same way. You're with a group, you're with a community. I think that's what a lot of people are attracted to when it comes to this uh, subreddit, Wall Street Bets. It's not just the money. Yeah, they love making the money, but they feel part of something larger. You know, we all want to be part of communities and not everyone goes to the church, synagogue anymore. And we look for things and some people look for politics and now others are drawn to trading. And as you suggest, he sort of got into it early on. He was a little bit skeptical and being, it was more of an investment decision, and he made his best decision. He bought $500. He only put $500 into these options. But before he knew it, he was caught up. He couldn't do anything else. couldn't think about anything else. He was playing tennis with his friends, and literally after every point in the match, he was whipping out his phone and checking the current price, how much he was making, how much he was losing. It, it was all-encompassing. And, you know, he was thinking about selling, but he'd go on this site, this of Wall Street bets, and they were saying, no, 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 it's going to 1000 it's going to 5000 don't sell, don't sell, and he got caught up in it, in it. and I don't mean it disparaging to say it was cult-like, but you could see how people get caught up, and it becomes a frenzy, and that's what happened to him, and he almost, he jokingly calls it a mini-intervention, but he sort of had to have his friends step in and say, dude, sell, you're up $200,000, you don't know what's going to happen here, 
you need the money, sell, yeah. sell now. And he did. That was the mantra for a lot of people on Wall Street Bets, you know, hold, don't sell. We're going to keep riding this. We're going to keep riding that. It didn't really play out that way. He sold, when he sold, it was right before the all-time high. Thankfully, obviously, before it dropped, it was in like 300, 400 range. I, I don't remember exactly what the all-time high was. I checked right before we did the story, and the numbers change constantly, so it could be different by the time you know you hear this. Uh, but it was about $93. He got out at the right time. He told his parents right after he did it, he didn't want to worry them. He didn't want to stress them out about what he was doing. So he told them right after he got out, oh, by the way, are you, are you hearing about this GameStop craziness? And they were like, no. We don't think about GameStop shares. And then he's like, yeah, I just made $200,000 trading this thing. And his dad right away, I love the response. He's like, were you insider trading <laughs> to his own son? But the mother's like, wasn't even like taken by it until she heard a few days later some segment on NPR. But um, as you suggest, he says he got lucky. His mom was all impressed. His friends were impressed. He's like, no, I got lucky here because he got out at the right time. And if it wasn't for his friends sort of leaning on him, to get out, he probably would have held on and he'd be down a lot. So a lot of it's luck and you feel bad for the people that got in at the end, but he got out at the right time. What's next for him? You know, he's got to pay some taxes on it. Boston is not a cheap city to live in. What does he plan on doing with all of that? When you hear he made 200000 in a few weeks, you feel the guy's made in the shape. You know, you got to pay short-term taxes on that. And that takes a huge chunk out. The guy's living in an expensive city. So I, I think, and he's in a graduate program that's going to last a number of years, six or seven years. I think his whole thing, frankly, is his parents have some money, but he wants to depend on himself. He doesn't want to lean on them. And now he'll be able to pay for his education and such and his expenses. So I give him a lot of credit. He seems like a sweet enough kid. So you like when those kind of people make money. You just feel for those types of people who are getting in a little too late and maybe got in when he was getting out. And for every one of these individuals that you root for, there's somebody similar who maybe got in a little too late, so you feel bad for them. Gregory Zuckerman, special writer at the Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, great to be here. You are the heart and soul of who we are as a country, and the rest of the world is looking to you to help them understand us and so we can help them as well. Joining us now is Anita Kumar, White House correspondent and associate editor at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Anita. Sure. Thanks for having me. I always like these kind of stories, a little peek into the White House, the governing styles, how things work behind the scenes. President Joe Biden has been in there a couple weeks now, and we're seeing how he's operating in there. Uh, We're hearing that he likes to stroll around the White House in the East Wing. Uh, He pops into other people's offices. He's very much an extrovert, a people person who wants to talk to people face to face. The pandemic kind of puts a a little crunch on some of that sometimes. But tell us how it's going so far and, uh, you know, kind of in contrast to the way President Trump operated in there. Yeah, well, you're exactly right about that. I mean, he has been known his whole life, I think, for being an extrovert, very outgoing and wants to see people, talk to people in person. And as you mentioned, that's really hard during coronavirus. So he's not getting out of the White House very often. He's not traveling the country like we might expect during non-COVID times. So what we are seeing is him strolling around the White House and popping into different offices just to say hello and check in with staff or you know, for a particular occasion or a particular meeting, we are seeing him doing a good number of some of the meetings he would be doing anyway with outside experts, but he's trying to do those by video instead of, you know, by phone so he can 
see those people, even if you can't be in the same room with them. So we're seeing a lot of that. You know, you asked about Donald Trump. I think, you know, Donald Trump also liked to talk to people and see people and be seen. And so there's a little bit of a similarity. But I think beyond that, their style is completely different about how they get information and talk to people and try to make those decisions. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Joe Biden, a politician for many, many years, he's he's definitely more of that traditional style President Trump, a businessman, so he kind of has that fast-moving pace. But even the way their time is structured and access to them is different. Joe Biden has a very strict schedule of phone calls that that are scheduled for him, you know, uh, people that control access to the Oval Office. And it was a little different for President Trump. There was a lot more people that uh, he welcomed in and out of the office. Joe Biden is taking a much more traditional way to govern. But this is sort of how he's done things. So You know, he will have a set list of calls to make that his staff will set up for him. He will have scheduled meetings. We know that he's doing a national intelligence briefing every day. He's also getting a coronavirus update every single day. Those are, you know, from staffers. But how he makes the decision is he'll get, um, you know, sort of a briefing paper. He likes to read something, but he doesn't want it to be hugely long. President Obama always liked to read a lot. He he wanted it to be all there and he wanted to read. And sometimes after he read, he didn't want to talk about it because he'd already read it. He, he knew what it said. President Biden, he likes to read it. He wants something concise. And then he wants to talk about it. He wants to talk about it with his aides. And then he wants to talk to these outside experts, which could be someone that deals with the policy, but it could also be a local official or a state official. So he's having those kinds of calls and meeting with his aides and making decisions that way. You know, President Trump really didn't like to have those briefing papers. He didn't want to read something. He would sort of famously have his aides debate an issue right in front of him. He wanted them to kind of go at it a little bit. So the style is very different, but something that Joe Biden has brought from, you know, his decades in in public life before. And as I mentioned, those gatekeepers that kind of really control him and and keep him on track and everything, it's uh, really three people. His chief of staff, Ron Klain, Annie Tomasini, she's the director of Oval Office Operations, and Ashley Williams, who's kind of like an executive assistant, but got a you know a, a name change for her position just to kind of elevate her there. But they're the they're the three gatekeepers for President Biden. President Trump, as you know, had four chiefs of staff over four years, and one of the big problems with you know his clashes with them is that he didn't like them controlling his schedule. So that was one of the problems. You know, President Biden really relies on these people to control the schedule for him. So his chief of staff, Ron Klain, is probably known to a lot of people. He's been on TV a lot and he's pretty high profile. The other two women, probably people have never heard of them, but these are the two women are basically running Joe Biden's life. Someone told me that Annie Tomasini, who you mentioned, director of Oval Office Operations, really does run Joe Biden's life. She really is the person that makes everything work for him, his schedule and all of that. So you're not going to get in to see the president if you don't go through one of these people. You know, you're not going to get a call unless you schedule it with one of those people. Anita Kumar, White House correspondent and associate editor at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.